This is Metal Mike, and in this episode, we talk with legendary producer Bo Hill. Hear inside stories and Bo's thoughts on bands he's produced like Winger, Warren, Rat, Twisted Sister, and more. We hear how he cracked the whip as a producer, and I make him create a supergroup based on rockers he's produced, and his answer may shock you. If you're checking this out on YouTube, please like and subscribe, and consider being a supporter through Anchor. Details are in the description below. Feel free to email me anytime your comments at 80sglammodel1 at gmail.com, and I'll keep you in the loop of what's coming next on the channel. It's a cool one with Bo. Check it out. Well, Bo, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, man. Really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, what have you been up to? You've been producing or doing anything like that in uh, in recent times? Well, I had spent the last several years primarily mixing and mastering. Uh, it's just the whole production side of, of the business obviously changed right, right. considerably. You know, with the budget shrinking and everything else, I still wanted to work and wanted to be involved. And I love mixing, so this was, was the, uh, the alternative. Uh, what kind of music? Any music at this point that you'll work on? I, I do stuff from bands around the world that I have never even met. Wow. <laughs> they, they go to my website and they, they reach out to me and they say, hey, you know, will you uh, mix these songs? And then we work out the details and off we go. Awesome. Do you get a lot of people who try to like emulate that 80s sound that, that want to hire you? Or, or like I said, or is it just all different kinds of music? Well, I think the, the people that reach out to me um, are obviously people that are familiar with my work. Mm-hmm. And I don't really get people saying, hey, we want to turn back the hands of time and, <laughs> and make an 80s sounding record. They just they want to have their little piece of the creativity uh, presented in the best light possible, and you know, after selling a little over sixty-five million records, there's a lot of people out there in the world that are familiar with my work, so they just reach out. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I want to say it was maybe a year or two ago you remastered or remixed um, Kicks, right? Blow my fuse. <clears throat> I did both of them. Mm-hmm. I did uh, Midnight Dynamite, and I just finished. Well, I didn't just finish. A few months ago, I finished uh, Blow My Fuse. Nice, nice. What's it like when you go back to those albums? Because I know you, you produced the original recording for um, Midnight Dynamite, but what's it like when you go back? Right. You, do you feel like you've you've got better tools to do something <sighs> different with it, or what do you think? You know, that's a really great question that you ask. I wasn't really sure how I was going to feel about it, but I'm so glad that we did it. Um, cause those records were done 30 years ago and I never thought in a million years that I would be able to review work that I thought was pretty good back then. And, you know, with no false modesty, there were a few surprises when I dug into the masters and I went, Oh man, that, that's pretty, that's, that's okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't remember how I did it, but I was really happy with, with the result. And then about 30 seconds later, I open up another track that has got the worst sounding whatever <laughs> has ever been recorded. So, you know, it was it was quite an unexpected journey. I think that's the part of it that I liked the best. Yeah. And 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 the way that they did it, the company that that does this stuff, 
they sent over copies of everything, the notes that I took, um, mixed notes, outboard equipment, settings, console settings, everything. So I was, it was really like I was on an archaeological dig. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and I was able to kind of listen back and go, so I guess this type of, of approach was really important to me back then. And, and the guys in Kicks were so cool about it. I mean, it was, it was both do your thing, whatever you want to do, just do it. And it was, it was great. I mean, I, I wish I had the opportunity to do that with, with like every record I ever did. With the Kicks, you know, because that, that was pretty successful, maybe you will be able to go back and uh, revisit some of these other albums. That would be, that would be a pleasure beyond. I can't even tell you. So the first big album that you produced was out of the cellar, correct? Well, it, that was the first the first one that that sold anything. So I guess for all intents and purposes, that's the record that really put me on the map. <laughs> right, and I think you just said said it all right there. So when this album blows up, I mean, everybody and their brother wants to work with you at the, after this, right? It had to have been amazing. Oh yeah, I I had uh, I had a lot of work a lot of work on the table. <laughs> Out of the cellar to me, when I listen to it today, it, it still sounds great. I mean, for this to be one of your early works, you know, the, the the one that really broke through. I mean, it still sounds great. I think, and it's the material as well. I mean, the sound is great, but also the material. It's just like you know, this is like Rat's greatest hits, but it's like their first full length album. It's just a really great album. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. It's a, yeah, it's. It's funny when you think about it, artists will spend their entire lives writing that first album. Right. And then every record after that, they have to they have to write it, conceive it, record it, and get it done, you know, in a year. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's funny, you, you bring up an interesting point, because if you look at a band, let's just say, for example, Motley Crue, they didn't come out of the gate huge, but they kept building up every album, getting bigger and bigger. And then you can look at albums like... Rat Out of the Cellar or Metal Health by Quiet Riot. I know that Stay Hungry wasn't Twisted Sisters first, but it was their biggest. It's like you get these albums that are so big and it's really hard to, I think, for the band to to really follow them up. Would you agree with that? Yes, in certain instances I, I would. And I think, now this is me with my uh, Out Island Psychology 101 hat on. Okay. But I think the uh, the virtually instantaneous rags to riches story that a lot of groups had i think some of the guys struggled with that you know just uh like rat in particular because they were they were quite destitute um at the at the time they got signed and so to just knock one out of the park to that degree you know it it kind of can screw with your head sometimes. Mm-hmm. You produced obviously a few after that one. What do you think of the albums uh, of Rat that follow out of the cellar? Is there ones that stand out in your mind, or what are your thoughts on them? Well, I uh, I really loved Invasion of Your Privacy. I thought mm-hmm. that was great. Yep. And then um, I had a couple of, of real special songs to me anyway on um, Reach for the Sky. Mm-hmm. Dancing, dancing undercover to me was my least favorite uh, rap record. Mm. 
That's funny. That that's my and, least favorite one too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was you know the material was okay. You know, I don't think in all candor, I don't think that we were you know uh, breaking any new barriers uh-huh. at that point in time, either sonically or musically. You know, we were just trying to keep the party going, so to speak. Right, right. And also, you know, you have to feed the beast. So when, when, when there becomes an appetite for a particular band or a particular sound or what have you, you have to, you have to continue to, to produce product to keep people interested. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned Reach for the Sky because I've always really liked that album, and I know it's not really looked at by people as, as one of the best. Some, some people don't like that album, but I really, I really do. I think the songs are really good on it. And with that album in particular, you weren't the producer to begin with, but then you became the producer, you know, at the end of the, the project. What was the story with all that? Well, no, you see, and, and I'm not speaking out of school at all with this, mm-hmm. but the guys from Rat never really wanted me to produce okay. them, and certainly not their debut album. And I don't blame them one bit because they didn't know who in the hell I was from Adam. Sure. And... The funny thing that kept happening was after every record, no matter how successful it was, they kept firing me after every record and they would they would do it in a really kind of a public way, like somebody would do an interview in Billboard and then my lawyer would call me and he'd say, Hey, did you see Billboard this week? I don't know. He said, Okay, well go go to page whatever it was, page twelve. I said, Okay, well so what's on page twelve? And he said you just got fired by Rat. Oh, okay. And but it happened after every record, which was really it got to be it got to be funny actually after a while. And um, and then Doug Morris at Atlantic, the president of Atlantic, pick, would pick up the phone, call the band manager Marshall Burrell, and say, "Are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> this is this is working. We got to keep it going." Yeah. And so it, it just became. It just became kind of a thing. So, you know, and then we would patch things up and move forward and things like that. But initially, I, I was not their their pick. I believe they wanted Tom Allen to do it. Okay. And, uh, and so Atlantic kind of forced me on them. Well, not kind of, they did. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, directly. <laughs> so uh, when, the, when the Mike Stone thing happened well i i didn't really think too much about it because i had a i didn't have a particularly good experience on dancing and so it was kind of mutual at that point i'm like guys you know it's time to go do something else and and everybody agreed and so they're off doing something else and so and and i told i talked to doug and I, i said you know i i think i think it's ready for somebody else to have a go at this and everybody agreed, and they liked Mike Stone, and uh, so they came in, cut the tracks, and then about, I don't know, they just finished basic tracks, and they'd gotten the first vocal draft on it, and they sent it to Doug, and I got a phone call from his office, and it was, uh, he got on the phone, and he said, he said, I need a big favor, and I went, Doug, of course, you know, whatever, whatever you want, don't worry about it. And he said, okay, this is a big favor. I want you to go and fix this rat record. <laughs> and I was like, what? 
And, and his direct quote was, I said, well, what's wrong with it? And he said, they sound like the worst Holiday Inn band I've ever heard in my life. Oh, boy. And I was just like, no, that's <laughs> no way. And, but anyway, that was his opinion. Mm-hmm. And I was not about to say no to him because, you know, he gave me my start. Right. And, and so I said, absolutely, I, I'll, I'll do my very best. And I, I forget what project I was working on, but anyway, I stopped everything in its tracks and went and fixed Reach for the Sky. Wow. Another album that you did that maybe isn't one of the biggest sellers out, out of your catalog is uh, Love is for Suckers by Twisted Sister. And, and you know, the story's been told a million times that this was supposed to be a D. Snyder solo album. And, of course, you know, like just like the label wants you to be with Rat, you know, to, to help them out because it's a winning combination, you know, maybe D. needs that Twisted Sister name to, 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 you know, to push this thing. So it ends up becoming a Twisted Sister album. I guess the question that I've always had was, did the guys, the band, you know, the, the, guy, the original guys in Twisted Sister, did they even play a lick at all on this album? Because I see Kip, Kip Winger's name, Reb Beach, Ronnie Latecro. Did the, the guys of Twisted Sister play anything on Love Is For Suckers? You know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. <laughs> and I want to say, I want to say yes, uh, but I don't remember who and I don't remember what they played on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Kip and Reb played... A, huge 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 role on that record and gosh but i i i want to say yes that the twisted guys did play on it um i think maybe they played the basic tracks and then we were having some there were some you know some issues and so i i brought in reb to play the solos for sure okay and um and i think and kip came in and and fixed some bass stuff for us Mm -hmm. but it was you know, it was an all hands on deck project and we just wanted to make sure that it that it sounded the best that it possibly could and you know, and, and Deke and I talked about it and the label talked about it and so from a, the purest perspective of having only the Twisted Sister people play on it, everybody said, Bo, just make it a great record. We don't really care who you use or who mm-hmm. you don't use. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I love Ronnie Latakro from uh, TNT. What what did he do? I, I know his name's on there. Did he just help out with some arrangements, or did he play anything on there? I actually don't remember, but but either of those two possibilities could have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have been a co-writer with D, and then D said, "Hey, Bo, let's let's let uh, let's let him do the solo on 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 his song." Mm-hmm. And then if that's what D wanted. That's what we did. Yeah. The song Hot Love is a great song, and I always wonder if this song could have been huge if it was done by Poison or Motley Crue, but maybe just wasn't the right sound for Twisted Sister. Well, to be honest with you, the I think the Twisted Sister mystique and everything was kind of winding down at that point. Oh, big time, yeah. Where everybody had been Twisted Sister to death. Yep. I don't think that there was a huge appetite for it, certainly within MTV and uh, mainstream radio. I think everybody was like, okay, you know, we've been there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another one of those ones where, you know, Stay Hungry, so big, so huge. What a what a stellar album. And then it just kind of digresses, you know, after that album. And yeah. never can get back to it, you know? 
yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the goose that laid the golden egg, so to speak. And, and trying to reproduce that is really really tough. I mean, from a writing perspective, and I mean, D is one of those performers that he he doesn't leave anything anything out. I mean, he's on a hundred and ten percent all the way, and. You know, I I just don't know if he could have ever figured out a way to get any better. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. He's pretty amazing when it comes to melodies. You know, when I think of different songs that he's done, he, he writes really cool melodies. They're almost like they could be, I don't know, if they were instrumental songs, they could be like classical music or something. But they're, they're really catchy, rhythmic melodies that he, that he writes. Well, you know, in in my opinion, D is probably one of the most underrated vocalists yeah. of that of that whole era and that whole genre. Because this guy is a brilliant singer. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. When you look at the bands that you've worked with, I mean, obviously it was the '80s and all this excess and everybody's partying. Who is the most screwed up band, like on drugs and alcohol, in the studio? Who or, or did people actually go? And, and had it together in the studio, or did they come in wasted? Well, that's another great question, and I'll give you my general answer. I, I always felt like I had a fiduciary obligation to all the groups that I worked with to be, you know, responsible with, with the budget. Mm-hmm. And you can't, be, you can't be responsible with the budget if you've got, you know, a bunch of drunk guys vomiting on the studio <laughs> floor. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> And so the way that we, that we kind of did it was I don't, I don't do very well uh, late at night. So okay. we ran our sessions during the day like normal people. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to wrap by normally, say, 7 o'clock, which gave everybody plenty of time. You could go out, have some beers, get wasted, do whatever you want to do, but you've got to show up tomorrow, 9 o'clock in the morning, and then I gave everybody an hour before um, uh, before we started recording, you know, to have coffee, call your girlfriend, read the paper, whatever it is you want to do. Yep, yep. But at 10 o'clock, we're going to make it red and start work. And so keeping that schedule, if you will, which I must admit was very unpopular with most of the bands that I ever worked with because they thought it was the other way around. You know, they sleep all day, (laughs) come in and party in the studio at night and things like that. And I just said, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't function very well like that. And, but, but it, it was tremendously unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. I think with just about everybody. Yeah. I'm sure. When you talk about, so you kind of had to be a dictator with with time schedule. How about with like songs? I mean, I see there's certain songs you have credits on. There's certain songs that you've played keyboards on. So, I mean, were there songs that somebody bring in and and you had to be the bad guy and say, you know, like this song sucks? I mean, this had to happen. Yeah. And and that was a real source of of conflict uh, with the rat guys in particular. Um, because everybody in Rat thought that they were a better writer than everybody else in Rat, and mm-hmm. that wasn't necessarily the case. <laughs> and so I would collect all the demos in whatever forms they were, and then I was the bad guy that had to say, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And then as a 
back up, we'll do these three songs. And invariably, <clears throat> I made somebody very, very angry. So I always had somebody from Rat pissed off at me 24-7. <laughs> different people at different times, but somebody was always mad at me. No, I mean, that was, that, that was part of my job, mm -hmm. was to, you know, dispassionately try to uh, objectively pick the songs that I thought were, we had the best chance of at radio and MTV and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes, you know, I was, I was at odds with the, uh, with the guys in the band, and, but that was part of my job. You mentioned Dee Snyder as somebody that you think is is kind of a you know one of the best vocals vocalists and maybe maybe underrated as a vocalist. Two that stand out in my mind, and this is total package, is is Kip Winger and Janie Lane. Uh, I look at the the voices of these guys. I don't think they get the credit. You know, all that maybe now it's coming out more, but especially you know especially once the '90s hit and stuff. I don't know if these guys really got the credit of the kind of caliber of songs they can write, the vocals that they do. Uh, talk about these two a little bit. Well, uh, as I have mentioned many times, uh, Kip Weir is probably one of the most talented people that I I ever worked with. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, he brings it. He's got a great voice. He's a fine writer and a good performer. Oh, yeah. And Janie was, he was just, he was just an amazing guy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he and I got along really, really well. He was really easy to work with. He was a lot of fun. And he brought 110% every single time. And I always used to tease him, and I said, you know, if you weren't a rock star, you would have been a great Baptist preacher. <laughs> because, because, you know, he's, his heart's really into it. So That's awesome. So you did two albums in a row for each of these guys. Out of those albums, which one do you like better? Do you like the Winger debut better or their second one? And, and same thing with Warren. Which, which out of those two albums from each of them, which one do you like the best? I like the second one with both bands best. Oh wow! Okay, okay, cool. And 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 I I think the thing is is that um, I think I did a better job on the second records with both these guys. Okay. Um, m mainly because I was since Round and Round came out, I was in the studio twenty four seven, and so you know the more time you spend in there the more time you get to experiment the more time you get to say okay that really sucked don't ever do that again <laughs> and it, you know and you bring all that experience with you into every subsequent record that you make and so i i think i think i was getting better mm -hmm. and so when i listened to those records you know i i know what my contribution was from a I mean, primarily what I would do would be mainly rearrange material. I think that my arrangement skills were, were getting better and better and better on, uh, on those two particular records. Mm -hmm. and, those, and those guys, you know, we had been working together for a long time. I mean, as you mentioned, Kip and Reb, they were like my studio musicians. Mm -hmm. So they played on all kinds of records before we ever put Winger together. And the more we work together, you know, the, the better the better fit it gets to be until it's not. <laughs> but it is. You know, In the Heart of the Young is an interesting one because there's a lot of depth 
on that album. You know, like Rainbow and the Rose and The Day We'll Never See. Those are not your stereotypical, you know, L.A. hairband, you know, songs. You know, although there's some of that typical stuff on that album. I, I think the album starts off kind of that way. But it definitely goes into some pretty deep stuff, interesting stuff. Yeah. And that, I, that was, again, that was the Kip and Reb team. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really, really gelled. That's, that's really the only thing that I can say is that they really gelled. And, then, and also Paul Taylor, because don't forget, Paul Taylor brought in Miles Away, which I thought was a brilliant song. Great song. And, you know, so we just had some, some super talented people in that band, and, um, which certainly made, made my life easier from a, uh, from a production point of view. Mm-hmm. But who are some people that you almost worked with, like big 80s rock bands, but for whatever reason, it fell through? Well, two that come to mind. One is Ozzy. Ooh. And the other one is ACDC. Ah, those would have been great. (laughs) Those those would have been great. Now, I have to take the blame for Ozzy, and this would have been the No More Tears album. Okay, wow, all right. But I was... I was never, I never became an Aussie fan until uh, until the whole movement was over. And when he did uh, No More Tears, when No More Tears came out and I heard it on the radio, I just went, my God, was that the stupidest decision that I've ever made. <laughs> and, uh, and the ACDC one, was uh, I was on a short list, and then somebody in the, in the uh, European press, wrote something either about me or about them. Anyway, somebody from the European press got their political snoot into into that project, and I didn't get it because of that, which which was really, really, really pissed me off. So, anyway, those were two right off the bat that were that were disappointing, and and Europe almost turned out the exact same way, but but. Lucky for me, it didn't. You, okay, so what, Prisoners in Paradise? Right. That, that's an incredible album. And I think I've heard the story from the band that Bob Rock was supposed to produce it, and then he didn't, and then they were kind of, they had their backs against the wall, and luckily you were available to do it. Um, that, that's a great album. And I think, once again, it's probably just poorly timed because of the trends and music, but I, I love that album. I, I do too. And yeah, it was, I flew to San Francisco, uh, to sit in on a rehearsal, and the rehearsal was great. I loved the, the band. I loved their new music. Loved Joey's voice. And I was getting ready to leave. And I said, "Well, I really hope we get an opportunity to work together because the uh, their manager, uh, Herbie Herberts, wanted me to do it." And Joey came up to me right as I was leaving. He was as nice as he could be. He said, "Bo, really, thank you very much for coming up to to hear us, but." you're not going to do this record. And I went, oh, okay. Uh, do you mind telling me? Who's they said, yeah, Bob Rock's going to do it. And we're going to wait for him because he's in the middle of Metallica or whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, listen, Bob's a friend of mine. Actually, Bob was the guy that in- engineered my last album as an artist, believe it or not. No kidding. <laughs> and, and, I, and I said, Bob's, a, Bob's great. You guys will make a great record. Best of luck. And, you know, I walked out and I went, oh, shucks. It was probably three weeks later that I got the call from Herbie. And he said, you want to do it? And I went, yeah, let's go. 
So that's that's how that happened, and that was probably that had to be my most fun, or at least my top two or three records, just as far as just the complete off the chart hilarity of everything. So think about it: you got five guys from Sweden <laughs> with a Texan. <laughs> I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> Oh, right. Now, what about bands that you just are... So you mentioned two that you, you, that could have happened, but you just didn't happen with ACDC and Ozzy. But who are some that you just wish you could have produced? I mean, did you ever have a, a yearning oh. to do Motley Crue or any of these guys? Or who did you want to produce? No. No? The two artists that I would have given my right arm to work with was Sting and Peter Gabriel. Wow, so not even 80s rock type stuff. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Those are the, are the two that I, I would have uh, I would have done anything to work with them. Now, I got a real interesting one for it, you. Let, let's see if you can, if you can do this okay. one. Okay, create a super band based on all the people that you've worked with. So an 80s rock super band out of artists you've produced, different you know singer, guitar player, bass player, drummer from each band. Who would be your super group that you'd create? Wow. <sighs> okay. Well, with without dodging your question, I think the strongest players at every position is in winger. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, and I have to qualify this because I've worked with some of the greatest guitar players in the world, Mm -hmm. as well as some of the greatest drummers in the world. But as far as, you know, if I had to reach into my bag of tricks, is uh, Mike Slamer is as good as Red Beach. Mm -hmm. And Warren Demartini is is good in a different way. But, and then vocally, it would definitely be, Kip would be at the top of my list. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then you got groups like Kicks, which are completely different, but as a unit, there's not, I, I wouldn't replace any of those guys mm-hmm. yeah. because that unit really worked. Exactly. But as far as just sheer musical brain power, um, I would have to say that it would be uh, all the guys from Winger. Wow. That's. I didn't see that coming, Ball. That's pretty cool. I, I can't dispute it. I I agree with you. I mean, they're t- super super talented guys. So I mean, that's that's a good that's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got people like Rod, and he's a he's a uh, a percussion professor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So uh, these guys really they really know music theoretically, and. Um, as well as you know the practical aspects of, of being in a band so yeah one thing um this will be the last thing i'll ask you about it and i i notice this as a listener and i know this there's a couple probably reasons why this happens but if you listen to the sound quality of albums i want to say we're really peaking about 1990 1991 about when all this thing this whole thing is about to end but what was coming in that was making things sound so better? Was the technology just getting better? Because, like you said, if you if you you cherry pie and uh, 
Prisoners in Paradise, a lot of these albums, sonically, they're, they're the best sounding albums, you know, of this genre, in my opinion. Things were really peaking, but what was it? What made this stuff sound so much better at this point? I would have to say, yes, it was, it was certainly part of the technology. We were dipping our toe into the digital universe as far as uh, multi-track recorders went, mm-hmm. and Sony had a beautiful machine out called a 3348 which gave you 48 tracks and it also had a stereo sampling aspect so it made making records really consistently a lot easier so for example we would cut basic tracks on analog because everybody liked the nice warmth of it and then we put those tapes away and we would not use them again until until mixing and we transfer everything into the sony digital and we do the overdubs the vocals the solos all the stuff that keeps running the tape back and forth across the heads which which wears them out and then we wouldn't put them on again until it was time to mix so there was that going on the automation within um, the neves and the ssls of the world was getting really good so you, with each iteration of technology, you know, it just opened up the playbook uh, creatively hmm. because there weren't so many physical limitations as there were, you know, even five years earlier. So if you wanted to try something crazy, you you could if you could think of it, you could probably figure out a way to make it happen. You mentioned the word grunge. You know, grunge comes up a lot on this podcast. The year 1991, you know, the year of reckoning when, when everything kind of changed. Uh, how did that affect you? I mean, you, you know, you obviously you produced the bands that are, are no longer in. Was it hard for you to get producing gigs once the grunge thing hit? Well, what happened, luckily for me, was uh, we started putting together Interscope in 19... 19- 89 Mm -hmm. the end of 89 that's why i only wound up doing two records with warrant was because my my contract with interscope was getting ready to start and i was only allowed to do one outside band a year that wasn't on interscope Mm. so i had plenty of work to do trying to get the label up and running and we had no artists so i was traveling quite a bit you know trying to look for some artists to put on the on the roster Mm -hmm. so that didn't affect me uh directly but it was clear that um uh that my participation in the hairband era created a lot of challenges uh, down the road even in trying to sign bands for uh for interscope because it was like everybody kind of got painted with the same brush. If you if you had any degree of success during the, the hair days, the grunge guys were like, no way, I don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very, very challenging, that's for sure. Well, this has been an awesome <laughs> conversation. You, you really brought up some cool points, and it's really great to hear some behind-the-scenes stuff from these albums. Uh, for people who enjoy your work and have been following you all these years, anything you want to say to them? Thank you.
<laughs> awesome. Uh, if somebody wants you to, to work on their project, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, go to uh, my website, Bowhill Productions, and then there's there's links to how they can get to me and they can communicate with me and stuff like that. And and I'll actually it's the same the same way you found me. Mm-hmm. Right through the website. Great. And then I get I'll get direct contact and uh, follow up on it straight away. Love all these albums. Love this music. Uh, that's all I do is promote it. So, so this was awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mike, for, for thinking of me, and I've enjoyed the conversation with you as well. So all the best. Well, that was a cool one talking with Bo. Hope you enjoyed it. Rock on!